Hey folks, welcome back to another episode of Middle Class Rockstar. I'm your host, Andy Sido. I'm a local Denver musician, touring musician, songwriter, etc., whatever I can get my hands on, podcaster. I'm going to try to make this short and sweet since I did an awfully long monologue with Nick Clark last week. My guest today is Tony Mason. Tony is a talent buyer around town. He's been an important man in the music scene for the last 12 years or so, um, and he's been a buddy to me as well and booked many, many great shows for, for me and my band. Uh, he started off at CU Denver and booking shows through his own company, Tone Dynamics. He would take bills to venues and all different genres and put things together. He eventually attracted the attention of some promoters around town and got a job for himself. He was uh, He's been a promoter at... Herman's Hideaway, and Larimer Lounge, and he's been kind of the head booking guy at Larimer Lounge Lost Lake Globe Hall for the last few years. Well, he got a new opportunity to move to Dallas and book a large venue called Gas Monkey. I've been, uh, I've been to one of their venues before, and they're super nice. They're rather large venues, so it's a chance for Tony to go from booking 200 and 250 cap rooms to uh, a 2,000 cap room. So he announced he was leaving Denver and moving to Dallas, and it's a huge, it's a huge thing for our local music scene because he's been such a big part of it for so many years. And Tony has long been on my list since day one of somebody to interview for the podcast, and he said he was moving. And I thought, man, I got to get him on right now before he goes. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Denver and soon-to-be Dallas-based talent buyer, Tony Mason. What's going on? Thanks for coming over. Hello, hello. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I you haven't been over to my house yet. Ever. I have not. No, this is nice. I like it. Yeah, thank you. Thank. Although we're moving next weekend. I know it's kind of a bummer. Yeah, it's going to be a smaller place, but just the two of us. Nice. Yeah, which will be a first. Um, but I've you're you're one of these guests that I literally have had on my sheet on my little database spreadsheet since day one of people to interview and this has happened three times now in the last few months where a friend has said i'm leaving town and i and they're on that list (laughs) i gotta get you before you go you got me you got me before i'm out of (laughs) here well i want to talk all about that but let's start off with where'd you come from where were you born how'd you how'd you first get into music yeah so a little bit of my backing story um i grew up in like winter park granby grand lake area up in the mountains oh beautiful yep loved it up there and uh all through like high school i was a punk rock singer in a couple different punk bands so when i was like 14 years old i started my first punk band broken by law lasted only a couple years and we were 14 so it's not like it was very good at all it was the first thing i'd ever done uh, by the time i was 16 i started a new band we were called the offsets and i did that for a couple years and that was just like me and my best friends from high school um, but then after high school within a year or two everybody you know we all graduated and everyone kind of split ways most of them went to like cmc college up in steamboat um, so i was kind of left to myself in grand county and uh 
I was like, man, I'm a punk rock singer and that's all I know. What am I going to do? And so I just like went out and bought a acoustic guitar and a keyboard and a little PA system. And I had a little two bedroom apartment and I set up the spare room and I just started like playing, you know, I'd, all I knew how to do was sing. So I pretty much just started learning basic chords just so I could have something to sing to. Right. And I just started like playing some solo music. Um, and then by the time I turned 21 years old, I decided like, I don't want to live in the small mountain town. I don't want to pursue the family business anymore, the construction company, painting company. Um, I don't want to live this small town snowboarder life. I want to be a rock star. And that was like my ambition was I want to be a rock star. And so when I was 21 years old, I packed up my bags and I moved out of the small mountain town and I moved to Lakewood right down, actually right down the street from here I lived. Oh, really? For like the first six years I was down here. No kidding. And uh, I went to Red Rocks Community College. And so... I went to Red Rocks Community College for three semesters and I studied classical voice training and classical guitar and I did like poetry and creative writing and songwriting classes and just anything that was like artistic and music related and was in the, you know, the area I wanted to go towards. So I did that for three semesters and after three semesters of practicing and performing and doing all of that, one of my teachers was like, man, like you seem to be really, really into this. Uh, you should meet up with an academic academic advisor and look at maybe going to CU Denver, like the real university. And so I went and met up with an academic advisor and they were like, yeah, you should go check out CU Denver. They got a music business degree program. They have a music performance degree program. They have a music recording program. Like you can kind of find your way, you know, what you want to do there. And so I did. I transferred after three semesters to Red Rocks Community College. I went over to CU Denver and I transferred to do a dual degree of music performance and music business. And after one semester, I dropped the music performance and I kind of lost my drive to perform music. Like it was like I was, I was never really that good. And I'm sure like to this day, had I kept doing it, I'd probably be amazing by now. Yeah. But back then, especially like I was really never that good. And there were kids coming into my classes that were taking these music and vocal classes as like side courses and electives that were way better than me. And they weren't even trying. And I'm over here like taking private vocal lessons, taking college vocal lessons, practicing in my house all the time. And then these kids come in who aren't even trying and they're like so much better than me. And I, majors. I, yeah, and they're like not even trying or anything. And it just kind of like deterred me away from it a little bit. Yeah. And then like I had all these friends that were all performing music around me in music business school and, and music school in general. And, you know, they would just like practice all the time and they would get better and better. And I like didn't have that drive in me. I'd sit at home and practice. And after 20 minutes, I'd get bored and wouldn't want to do it anymore. And it's like, man, I should sit here and continue to practice and get better at this. But instead, I just like dabble in this, dabble in that, dabble in that. And I never really got good at like any instrument or, or, or at playing music in general. Yeah. Um, and so after that one semester at CU Denver, I was like, yeah, I'm going to drop the performance and just do music business. And then my whole mentality flipped over. And I was kind of like, you know, rather than trying to be this artistic performing musician, I would rather work for my friends who can sustain their drive to practice more and, and that are really, really trying to do this. And that was kind of my goal was to help them and work with them. And I've been an avid concert goer since I was a kid. I mean, I'd break away out of Grand County in the mountains on weeknights and drive down to the Ogden or the Bluebird and go see shows in like 1998, 1999 when yeah. I was like a junior, sophomore in high school. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I mean, music was just like my life and I loved it so much and I loved the live concert experience. And I can, I have these fond memories of being like, 18 19 20 years old at the ogden theater just watching like a set breakdown and the headliners about to go on you're watching the people like run around plugging stuff in and just like the hype and the ambition of a concert it was just really got to me and i was like this is i think this is what i want to do like i want to promote 
music. Like I want to book concerts and I want to set them up the right way. And this is like, I want to, I want to do this. And so I started taking my songwriter friends and building them into songwriter showcases that I would set up. Right. And so the first thing I did was uh, my girlfriend that I had at the time, have, she was working at a coffee shop in Golden called Cafe 13. And so I started like booking some little songwriter shows into Cafe 13. There was also Mercury Cafe downtown and Leela's Cafe downtown. So these are like the three spots that I just had no problem walking into, meeting the owners and being like, hey, like I really want to throw people. a songwriter showcase. What's that? And booking people. Yeah, and booking people. Well, so let me, let me stop you there and fill in a few of the details getting up to this point. Um, so high school, you're playing in bands. Um, was there much of a music scene in the Grand Lake, Winter Park area? No, not at all. I mean, you know, all of us high schooler cliques and circles of friends, like we were into it and we were playing music, but like there weren't a lot of bands. There wasn't a ton of people doing music. There was like our band and a few others and that was really about it. And gotcha. there wasn't a lot of a scene up there. I mean, it was just a bunch of bars and we're all under 21. There's no music venues in Grand County. There's just bars you can go play in. Right. But especially at the time, we were all under 21. Well, wasn't a, uh, what is it, uh, Poncho and Lefties and have a, have a little stage or something. They did, yeah, there. yeah. But again, like Poncho and Lefties, you're not going to bring some high schooler punk band to go up there and be like, ah, yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. You know, like they're looking Good for point. people to sit with an acoustic guitar and play to their dinner eaters or yeah. whatever. <laughs> um, so the family business, the construction business, is that some? Do you have siblings that did participate in that? Um, so I have a cousin out in Wisconsin who's just getting into it, thank okay. God, because so. Uh, Thomas A. Mason Painting Incorporated was actually started in Milwaukee, Wisconsin in 1912 by my great-grandfather. Wow. And then in the 50s, he passed it down to my grandfather, who took it over. And keep in mind, this is like horse-drawn carriage going through Milwaukee painting. Like, this is this is like way, way back before they're, you know, like they didn't even have a car or anything. This or a company's van. 108 years yeah. old. <laughs> and so my, my uh, grandfather in the late 70s, early 80s, he passed it down to my dad and my uncle. And when my dad and my uncle took it over at that time period, they took off with it. I mean, they started getting really, really big jobs and they're doing like skyscrapers and bingo halls. And like they have painted the Green Bay Packers Stadium. They have painted the Milwaukee Brewers Stadium. They've painted the Capitol building. They've painted like. So employees in the whole nine. Yeah, over 100 employees. It's a really big company. And like I said, I mean, once once my dad and my uncle took it over in the 70s, 80s, that's when they really blew it up into like a multi, multi-million dollar thing. Um, and was Now, was it when it was your great grandpa and your grandpa, was it? One it was it just small time stuff like yeah. the neighborhood houses? Yeah, totally. As and, far as I know. Yeah. And and so now your dad and your uncle, did they just have that business mind like, hey, we can make a lot more money at mm -hmm. this? Yep. Okay. And I think it has to do too with like the technological boom that was happening, you know, back in the late seventies, early eighties, compared to like the forties and the fifties. There was just a lot more going on and you know, I think mechanics and everything was picking up a lot more in the world and just in general. Wow, that's a, that's really interesting. Yeah, I kind of like to tell that little tidbit of the story just because it kind of shows people an insider view of like how dedicated I am and where my work ethic comes from and why I do what I do. Because at any point in time, working my pathway through this crazy, crazy music industry, I could have just thrown in the towel and given up and gone back to the painting business. And it would have been easy for me to do. Um, but I didn't do that because it wasn't where my heart was. You know, my whole life I've been thinking like, 
would I be happier if I was working at the painting business for the family? It's like, I'd have tons of money and I'd be set for life, but would I be happy? You know, would, would my heart be in it? And I never really thought it was. And that's why I've just pursued music my whole life. Cause that's, that's where my heart was, was in music. Wow. That's, that's cool. And that you don't see a lot of people that have an easy route paved out for them. And it's not even just a, a beep, a plan B we're talking about here. It's like, if you turn right at the intersection you're good, bro. Yeah, totally. I'm going to turn left. Yep. I mean, <laughs> they know? they rolled out the golden carpet. My parents rolled out the golden carpet for me when I was like 20 years old. They sent me to a union painting school, so I became a union painter. I was 20 years old, making over $25 an hour, working as a craft store, a journeyman, you know, certified union painter. And I had my vehicle paid for, my gas paid for, my insurance paid for. You know, making that kind of money at that young of an age, like I said, I mean, they pretty much rolled out the golden carpet for me, and I just steered away the other way from it. <laughs> How did your parents react to that? Were they supportive then, and are they supportive now? Yeah, you know, my parents have always been very supportive to me, and uh, I think there's like a little bit of an unspoken thing, I don't know, just between my dad and I, where like, I've always kind of felt more connected and more support through this whole journey from my mom than my dad. But also, understandably, you know, because my dad is the the guy who generated and created this whole huge business, and he's trying to pass it down to his son like his dad did to him, and I didn't do it. And, you know, I mean, like I said, they, but they've always been very supportive. When I told them that I was leaving and I wasn't doing the family business and I was going to go pursue music, by all means, they were both like, yes, go do that. If that's what you want to do, go do that. But I mean, I was on my own at that point. There was no more getting help from mom and dad. They, were, they weren't going to invest into my future of music or into my college, into my studies. Like I was, I was on my own. I'm still in so much debt from college. It sucks. So you had to pay, you had to pay your way once you came to Lakewood. Yeah. Yep. Definitely. Wow. Yep. Um, well, it sound, sounds like you got a good set of folks anyway. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. They're great. No, that's, and, and. Is he retired yet? Are they retired? Nope, nope. They uh, he still works. Well, my mom, like, she's always just been kind of like stay at home mom the whole time. My sister and I were growing up, and then my sister's three years older than me, so she graduated and left the house before I did. Then when I graduated and left the house in two thousand two, yeah, two thousand two, um, they just immediately just packed up, and moved to Mexico. But my dad still works remotely from down there, and he travels back to Milwaukee and Colorado all the time, and is just constantly like in this triangle from. Mexico to Milwaukee to Wisconsin because he runs his business in Wisconsin. I mean, Milwaukee to Colorado because he runs his business in Milwaukee and out here in Grand County, Colorado. But he does it remotely from down there. So he's not he's not painting and he's not doing the painting. No, anymore. no. Yeah, he hasn't painted in a long time. Long, long time. Wow. That's he grew his company to a point where uh, he doesn't have to do the task anymore. That's <laughs> yeah, nice. Yeah. That's really nice. Yeah. So you moved. To Lakewood, probably not knowing too many people, Lakewood, mm -hmm. Denver. Yep. And Red Rocks Community College, and then CU Denver. A lot of guests are CU Denver alumni. I wonder why. <laughs> Me too. Um, what year was that that you started at CU Denver? Uh, it had to have been like 2007, because I moved to Denver in 2005, did three semesters, which is like a year and a half at Red Rocks. Yeah, it had to have been like 2007, 2008. Oh, so we may have overlapped a little oh, bit. 2000. 2005? Yeah, because I started Red Rocks at 2005, so it was like 2007 that I started. And you were there for a few years? Yep, 2010 I graduated. I guess I started in fall of 09, so we... Oh, wow, yeah. We may have... We probably didn't have any classes together. Yep, because I was senior and just about on my way out with my yep. last few courses when you were just getting in. Yeah. 
well, what the, now I want to know how, I'm trying to remember how we met. And I don't, I don't remember. Was it in school? I don't know either. I have no idea how we met. That was a long time ago now. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I'm wondering if it was just booking you on a show at Herman's Hideaway or if it was before that. I think it was, but no, because before Herman's, weren't you at uh, Cervantes' other side? Mm-mm. No, but I was an independent booker and I did book With a bunch dynamics. of shows. Yep. And I did, I did bunch of, a bunch of shows at Cervantes' other side. I think I must side. have done a songwriter showcase and maybe even Rachel helped out with that. Oh, you know what? You did do a songwriter showcase way back. Yeah. Wow, I remember. I remember the poster. My friend, my friend Chrissy, developed a flyer for it. And I remember your name being on it with a bunch of other songwriters, and we threw a show. I, I mean, I could look, take some time on Facebook and look and find out where it was. But yeah, that. Oh my god, that might have been it. One of like the tone dynamic songwriter showcases. (laughs) Yeah, when we're done with all this, I can find it. (laughs) That's awesome. Um, But yeah, I'd see you, Denver, and for you why well, i have this question i guess with a lot of people who get into the industry side of things most people that i hear who get into the industry side and you found out in college that you were going to do that are people that wanted to be rockers or mm-hmm. wanted to be punkers or whatever and then ended up choosing a different path mm-hmm. do you was there a point when you made that decision uh, to focus on the business end of things where you felt disappointed or unfulfilled in no, music? not at all, really, no. I think it was just kind of one of those things where it was like I, I, knew, I knew my role, I knew my path. I knew that like being a performing musician was going to be so difficult and I didn't have the skills for it and it was just going to take so much and it was just kind of like, I don't know, like I, said, I lost a lot of the passion for actually like performing and it just kind of came more into a business thing, which... I think kind of works out because even just my genes, my family line is like business entrepreneurs and not like creative artistic people. Like there's nobody in my family who is like an artist or like a painting artist or a musician artist or like, I mean, I guess my, my grandma did a lot of music. She did, she was a piano teacher and she did like accordion lessons and stuff like that. But mm. aside from that, no one really in my family was, you know, very like super artistic. And I think I just, I was fighting against the grain where it was like, I wanted so bad to be artistic and creative and good at singing and crafting lyrics and verses and courses and all of that. And it was just so much work for me to get good at it. And I never really got good at it, even with all that work. So when I hit the point of like, all right, I want to be a promoter instead of a musician, it just kind of made sense. And, and it wasn't ever like it was just one, like, I'm just going to stop playing and do like, it wasn't ever like a one all of a sudden, sudden moment that was like, I'm no longer playing music. I'm going to be a concert promoter. It just kind of like slowly transferred over a few months where it was like I was performing I was doing all these lessons and classes and performances at school and then all of a sudden I kind of just like wasn't really focused on that stuff anymore and I was more focused on like booking lineups and putting together production schedules and putting together everything that it takes to throw a concert so your passion was in music but when you found the business side you realized that that's the branch where your passion yeah. Resided. That yep. was a really weird sentence. It just came way more <laughs> naturally to me. Yeah. It, ca- it came way more natural to me. Well, and I, I do remember in college, too, you were, I mean, I guess you're a few, a few years older, and so you were kind of already doing it mm-hmm. when, I, when I came along. But you were one of the people that everybody knew because you were one of the only outlets to play live. You know, it was through yeah. Tony. Yeah. <laughs> hit up Tony, he'll find a bill for you. And that was a cool thing for us when back at a time when there was no clubs that were gonna Yeah. Put you guys come in. Come let me play. Uh-huh. 
um, had to get my feet wet and, and you were always putting stuff together. Well, that's how I feel. I've really built myself into this community and just into this position where I'm at now is by working with all the artists from the beginning and, and all of us grew together, you know, and when I was booking those songwriter showcases, I didn't know what the hell I was doing, but I was doing the best that I could. And I think a lot of those musicians felt the same way. Like they didn't think that they could go perform on the Bluebird stage or even at Larimer Lounge stage. And like, let's just go try this out in a little coffee shop with Tony and see what we can all create and do together. And it was all just like working together on such a small level, but then it all just slowly started growing more and more. And some of those musicians, you know, I could look at some of those old Tone Dynamics posters and maybe some of those musicians I've never seen again or never even heard from again and have no idea where they're from. Other ones, like you, or Colfax Speed Queen, or the Kinky Fingers, or so many bands, are still doing it, which is so cool to see that, like, we all were doing this 12 years ago and we've all come up to this level that we're at now 12 years later and it's a really, really cool thing to, to work together and to see. It's, it's you, you uh, kind of hit the nail on the head with building yourself into the community and the community has risen and you've been, I mean, everybody, right? And you've kind of been a big part of that and not just the 12 years went by and we've all gotten better at our craft <laughs> and to a higher level of our craft, but also the Denver music scene in general was not on the map 12 years ago to anybody. Yeah. And uh, was it Rolling Stone just released an article where they talked about 10 music cities or maybe it was eight mm -hmm. and Denver was the first or second one on that list and they showcased a lot of stuff about the town. And I thought, <laughs> man, that's so cool. Yeah, that is. Um, and you've been a big part of that, you know, of growing Definitely. growing the whole scene yeah. in Denver. Well, thank you. So, So that said... You're leaving it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you gonna skip forward to that? You, we're missing a no, lot. No, you know what? Yeah, there. yeah. Let's not. I was, I was. That okay, seems that was... like a clear segue, <laughs> but I'm just, I'm just teasing the listeners. After commercial break, we'll get into that. So, yeah. No, let's continue in our little chronological order here. Yeah, I like yeah, this. definitely. Um, so I think kind of like where we were at was just me being in college and kind of figuring out that music performance wasn't me and music promotions and building concerts was. And I started kind of building these little songwriter showcases around town. And I just put together maybe six or eight of my friends that were playing guitar or just singers or playing piano or whatever it was that they were trying to do and um, put them together on a lineup and throw that together. Oh, sorry, I totally blanked out where I was going with that right there. You were doing songwriter <laughs> yeah, showcases. Okay, so I was doing songwriter <laughs> showcases, <laughs> and uh, yeah, after doing like a handful of them, I probably did ten or twelve songwriter showcases. And uh, you know, I mean, people were kind of starting to get to know who I was, just as far as like these few coffee shops and these few songwriters and musicians and whatnot. Um, and then there was this girl Whitney that I was in college with, and she was in the music business degree program with me as well. And uh, she was like, "Hey, like." I see you booking these songwriter showcases, but I know that your background is in punk music and you love punk. Like, I'm interning at Old Curtis Street Pub. What do you think about throwing a punk Old show Curtis there? Street Old Pub. Curtis Street and Pub. Old Curtis Street Pub is not there anymore. Not there anymore. It went from Old Curtis Street Pub to the Curtis Club, and now it's Rocksteady. Um, completely revamped and built and like no, no longer what it used to be whatsoever. Ah, too um, bad. But... She was like, yeah, why don't you try throwing together a punk show? And so I took a few of my punker friends that were in punk bands, and I put together a show, and we promoted the hell out of it. Like, at this time, it was the days of MySpace, and we were blasting it all over MySpace, and I did probably 150 at least dollars worth of 
handbills and posters and print ads and stuff like that. And so I went and plastered them all over the city. And basically what I'm getting at is we promoted the hell out of the show on like a small independent level. And the night of, I think like 30 people showed up. <laughs> and that was it. I was like, I thought you were going to tell me that was my first sellout as a promoter. It was so defeating. I put so much money, time, and effort into that show, and we got like 30 people to show up. And, you know, it was what it was. And we did it again, and 40 people showed up. We did it again, and 50 people showed up. And then all of a sudden, I was out of punk bands. And I was like, shit, what do I do now? Like, I've re exhausted my resources of punk bands. And so I threw a rap show. And I started booking a couple of rap shows over there. And then I exhausted some of those resources. And all of a sudden, I did a metal show. And then I did like a country show. And now I'm like starting to really get in like with all these different genres. I'm like breaking out of just the songwriter realm and the punk realm and getting into a lot of other stuff. Um, and so after I throw a handful of shows of different genres at Old Curtis Street Pub, I decide like this is what I want to do. Like this is totally it. I'm going to start. I'm just going to make up a name, Tone Dynamics. And I came up with that name uh, just thinking of like tone being a sound. And then dynamics being like a and dynamic also being your first name. range, and yeah, that had a little bit to do with yeah. it too. Like my, you know, growing up, my mom always just called me Tone. A lot of people just call me Tone, so that had a little bit of influence on it too. But I was also just thinking like a tone, a sound, and then dynamics. I was just thinking of something like dynamic, a broad range of spectrum, something like that. Um, because my point of it was like I wanted to book shows and I wanted to do all genres and I wanted to put the right genres into the right room. So I wanted to book the songwriter showcases into coffee shops. I wanted to book the punk rock shows into punker clubs. I wanted to book the hip hop shows into more hip hop friendly clubs. And I kind of wanted to like start gearing it like that. So I started the name Tone Dynamics. And what I did was I put together this like portfolio of all of my artists and shows. And it was basically just a three ring binder. And the first few pages were like all of the artists I knew and their genre and their contact information. And then the next few pages were like my history of just like the few shows that I did and how many people showed up and this and that. Um, and then the next pages were like all of my pictures and posters and all of that kind of stuff. And so what I'd do is I'd take that three ring binder and I'd go around to venues around town. Like I started off with like Moe's Original and the Skylark and the High Dive and the Rockstar Lounge and Cervantes' Other Side and Larimer Lounge. And I'd just go to these places and be like, hey, my name's Tony Mason. Like I'm in college here in Denver. I'm a booker and a promoter. I have this huge list of bands. If you ever have an open night that you just need something, like let me know and I'd love to book a show. And that's what I started doing. I started going to all these venues and letting them know that. And they would just throw me a random date. And then I would go to these bands and tell them like, hey, like I've got a date at this venue and I'm trying to book a show and I'm negotiating the best deal I can so we can get everybody paid. And that's what I would do, go around and do that. And I'd build lineups and promote them and throw shows at all these different little venues around town. And, uh, you know, like quarterly, I would do like a Bluebird show. I did a few of those um, where I'd take like my best artists, my best performers and shows and do them up at a bigger club. Um, and that was kind of like my start into the world of booking. And I just needed a fictitious name to do it under. So I started Tone Dynamics. And so this was all independent at this point yeah completely independent i was not uh -huh. making a single penny doing it yeah if anything i was spending money doing it and you know I, i'm over here telling these bands like i'm negotiating the best deals i can from these venues for us to get in and do shows i was i didn't know what the hell i was doing i didn't even know like what a basic deal structure was at that time i was just trying to get a date you know but i'm like telling all these bands i'm like negotiating the best deals i can yada yada and really it's like just give me what you got yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Wow. and uh you know, as an independent promoter, like I could have taken my 10 or my 20% off the top from, you know, all the shows, but 
on such a small level, man, most of these musicians are getting paid 50 to $200. Like, what am I going to do? Take my five to 20 bucks off of the show? Like, I don't care about that. You know, it wasn't, and it wasn't about that. It was about doing it. Um, and so I, I never really made money doing it. And it was just getting myself into the community and into the venues and in with all the bands and artists, just letting everybody know who I was and what I was doing. <laughs> wow. <laughs> uh, there's, there's, a, I guess, a couple of approaches, and yours seems to be probably a, a more successful of the two. A lot of people will just try to apply for a job right away, and maybe you get a job, maybe you don't. But if you don't have a job right away, you just start doing it. Yeah, you just got to throw yourself in it. Yeah, and, and it seems like you did just that to, to the point where these clubs uh, wa- probably wanted you on their staff. Yeah, that's how it ended up happening then was – I was doing all this independent promoting, and on my senior year of college, my teacher, Storm Glore, was like, man, you need to get an internship. I'm like, an internship? Hell no, dude. I'm not working for free. Like, I manage a snowboard shop that I work full-time at. On a little bit of spare time on the weekends, I go paint for my family business still. I'm a full-time student in college. I work at Red Rocks throughout all the summers, working every single show up there, doing merchandise sales for the bands. I don't have time to do a you know free work for someone to, to do an internship, but Storm kept telling me that you know get an internship and that's the way into the industry. So I went over to Larimer Lounge because they were the people in the venue that I kind of knew the best and respected and looked up to the most for what I was doing, and I asked about getting an internship there, and they gave me an internship there. And so you know the first month or two of my interning at Larimer Lounge, it was really just like plugging in a couple bands here and there, helping out with a little bit of marketing, hanging up lots of posters inside the venue, doing like a little bit of publicity work, like just reaching out to local media and press about shows we have coming up to try to gain any exposure I could. And after a couple months of doing it, they were really happy with what I was doing and could tell I was devoted and into it. And so Scott Campbell, who was the owner of Larimer Lounge and my boss at the time, also works at AEG Live as a talent buyer, was like, hey, man, you're killing it over at Larimer Lounge. What do you say if we transfer your internship over to AEG and we give you a part-time job at Larimer Lounge? So, again, this is going into, like, now venues are starting to want me a little bit for what I'm doing. And uh, I agreed to that. And so I started interning at AEG Live, and then my part-time work at Larimer Lounge was basically just, like, booking and publicity manager is what they called it. And so I would just spend 10 hours a week doing booking, and I'd spend another five hours a week doing publicity stuff, and uh, that was my, my part-time job and my internship over at AEG. And then after my internship at AEG expired, um, you know, they really liked what I was doing and just like, yeah, let's, let's keep doing this. And so I stuck around Larimer Lounge and kept working there. But then I graduated college. And now I'm looking for like full-time work. And I'm working part-time in a snowboard shop and part-time for the family business and, and part-time at Larimer Lounge. At this time when you're with Larimer Lounge, Scott did own it at the time. Yeah. But Globe Hall and Lost Lake weren't a thing yet. True. Yep. That's okay. correct. Okay. So, and he was already a talent buyer at AEG as well. Yep. Okay. So, yep. That, I did, I wasn't sure at what point all that happened. Yeah. Yeah. I guess he's been around. Doing yeah. He's, that he's been around time. for a while. He was like yeah. booking 15th Street Tavern through like the 90s or like late 90s. Uh, and then I think it was like 2002 or three, I think two was when he actually like went with a partnership, like with a buddy and partnered up and bought Larimer Lounge and started doing that. Shortly after he was doing Larimer Lounge and doing all the booking there, it turned the heads over at AEG, and AEG was like, man, what is this guy doing? We need to bring him on to our team. And so they brought him on to AEG, and they allowed him to continue owning and booking and handling Larimer Lounge on the side while he booked Bluebird and you know First Bank Center and Ogden and Gothic and all that stuff. Wow. Okay. Yeah. 
That's some good context there. Yeah, definitely. Good, good context. But um, after I graduated college, I needed a full-time job, and I didn't really find one anywhere right away, you know, in the first few weeks after graduating. But then uh, right away, Herman's Hideaway came to me, and Herman's Hideaway was like, hey, our lead talent buyer, Paige Montgomery, is moving to L.A., and we need someone to take her spot. Would you be interested? And I was like, yeah, I'm definitely interested. Um, so I went into an interview with Mike Roth, who's the owner of Herman's Hideaway, and I mean, I just totally crushed this interview. Like I went in and I had a whole portfolio of every show I did and hundreds of artists and all their contacts and broken down my genre, kind of that same portfolio I was talking about earlier, just a much bigger, better version of it. And I rolled into the interview with that and showed him everything I had. And it was like, boom, hired on the spot. I mean, I hardly had to say anything. I was just hired on the spot for Herman's Hideaway. And so straight out of college, I went, I left Larimer Lounge and left everything I was doing there so I could accept a full-time job over at Herman's Hideaway. And uh, just for people who aren't from Denver, Herman's Hideaway is a sizable venue that's been around forever on South Broadway. It's, what is that, a 500 cap room yep. or something? Yep. And it's been there since... I mean, it's been there for over 30 years now. A long time. Yeah. Since Big Head Todd was coming up and they needed a place to play. Yep, exactly. <laughs> so anyway, continue. Uh, so... Herman's Hideaway was awesome. It was a really, really good chance for me to kind of take everything that I had learned through college, through Tone Dynamics, through my internships at Larimer and AEG, and kind of put it all into one place. And so I came into Herman's Hideaway, and I started booking their calendar and doing my normal, you know, booking and posters and promoting and all of that. But then I also started up all of their social media, where at the time, keep in mind, this is like MySpace days, and all this stuff was just coming out. So I started their Twitter, I started their Instagram, I started their Facebook pages and uh, revamped their website and just kind of like put all of this work into it. Um, then I started learning like how to work the door and just, you know, like being door and security, which was really, really good because I would work door on all the shows that I booked. And so I was there from the process of like booking the show to promoting the show to everything on the backside of making a show happen to then night of the show being the guy right at the front door greeting you as you come in taking your money handling all the money for the night at the end of the night you know dividing it all up and handling the settlements and doing that and uh, I mean I pretty much lived in the venue I was there all day long just booking and doing computer work and doing social media and doing street teaming and you know, managing interns that I had brought on underneath me and all of that. And then I'd be there all night long working the shows and, you know, loading out at the end of the night with the bands and get out of there at three in the morning. Um, wow. And, but again, like it was, it was really cool because I had learned all of these things about street teaming and how to effectively street team and how to develop street team routes and where the good areas are to do it and where the bad areas are to do it. And I had learned so much about publicity and what it meant to reach out to people at Westward or Colorado Music Buzz or the Denver Post or whatever media center to try to get exposure for my shows. And um, yeah, like I said, just basically everything that I had learned in the past, Herman's Hideaway was kind of my opportunity to bring it all together in one place and really figure out like what I was doing and how to do it. Mm. Um, so fast forward a little bit, you know, two years go by of doing Herman's Hideaway and, and it's what year at this point? Uh, now we're talking 2004, five? No, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I graduated in 2010, 2012. So it was like 2013. Yeah, it had to have been 2013. That sounds about right. Yep. Um, and for some reason, you had not yet come out with an ebook about how to properly street team. <laughs> yeah, right. And still haven't. <laughs> but 
I was uh, working a side gig at Red Rocks, and so I did merchandise sales for bands at Red Rocks. And that was one of my first gigs in the music industry, but it wasn't in any avenue or alley of what I was trying to do. It was just a gig in the industry that made really good money, so I stuck so, with it. To, uh, I you still do that sometimes. I right? do, yeah. I've been there for 11 years now. This, um, now that I'm leaving, this will be the first year that I'm not there. Yeah, and I think anybody who's been to a Red Rocks concert more than once has probably seen you at the at the merch booth. Yep. Um, I know I have. What what is what's that job like? I mean, it's probably way different than running merch for your friends band at the Bluebird. Yeah, we talk about that. A oh little man, bit? the Red Rocks gig. Yeah, we can break into that for a minute. Um, those shifts are long and aggressive, and it is, it's is—it's a lot of work, but it's fun because you're at Red Rocks, and Red Rocks is like the most magical place on earth, and the employees are happy to be working there, and the bands are happy to be playing there, and the fans are ecstatic just to be there, so the overall energy of being and working at Red Rocks is just hands down amazing. Like It's awesome, but... We're there by like 12 noon, 12 in the afternoon, we show up and we're unloading the semi trucks full of merch and we're shuttling them up to our main merch booth. And then by one or two in the afternoon, we're breaking into the merch and we're counting it and we have to break out every piece. And keep in mind, I mean, a lot of the times we're checking in anywhere from like 70000 to $250,000 of merch. So if we have like $200,000 worth of merch coming in, it takes us a couple hours to truck it from download up top. And then it takes us a long time because we have to go through and literally count every single piece, every single piece. I mean, there might be 1,500 t-shirts broken down by small, medium, large, and you have to count every single one They don't one have of them organized already? They do, but you can't trust what they're bringing you because if they tell you they're bringing you 1,500 t-shirts, but they really only brought you 1,200 t-shirts and you don't count to check that, you're going to be off at the end of the night. So, so you don't have to double check the sizes. You just have to double check. No, uh, but we we do that. We we check everything because we have to know our exact inventory. Every single thing that comes into us, we need to know exactly what it is. So we can so it's held accountable for. And so and, and that's where things come up really bad at the end of the night is if a dozen t-shirts went missing or are stuck in the bottom of a box. And keep in mind, one dozen stack of t-shirts is nothing when you're looking at fucking 200, 300 stacks of these shirts. One little stack of 12 shirts is like, can so easily get lost in the bottom of a box or in the back of the tent or just like anywhere. And that right there could be like a $1,200 expense. You know, like it can be a lot of money to lose. That much. Yeah. Yep. Well, I guess that might be a little much. We're not really selling $100 t-shirts, but uh, it's they can be pricey. I mean, they, you can have a $60 t-shirt, and you lose a dozen of those, and it's a good, a good chunk of change and you lose. you have to there. come up with that money? Uh, yeah, so I'll break down a little bit more of the day at Red Rock. So we, like I said, we show up around 12 noon. We, we bring up all the merch. We count it all out, and then we get it all set up. We divide it, like a third of it and bring it up to the top of Red Rocks and that merch stand up there, and then the rest, the two-thirds of it, stays at the main merch booth at the bottom there. And so we get everything set up. And you got to think, we're, we show up at 12 noon. Usually a Red Rocks show, doors open by like 5 o'clock. So we typically have about five hours to like – get everything going you know we gotta accept all the merch we gotta receive it we gotta count it we gotta organize it and we gotta set it up pin it up on the boards get everything completely ready for sales get our credit card machines activated get our cash banks you know ready so we have little aprons on with cash in them so we can get ready for fast tending and then as soon as the gates open at five o'clock, it's it's go time. And you know, especially for Red Rock shows, people hound you. They get you quick. <laughs> so so by five oh three you've sold your first shirt. 
Oh, by five o'clock in two seconds, I've sold my first shirt. Do a lot of people <laughs> buy merch before the show as opposed yeah. to after? Oh, totally. Especially because if we ever have like any kind of event specific line of merch, it sells out. So if it's like if it's just a band on tour and they just have their line of merch, no big deal. It might not sell that fast, but they have a Red Rock specific T-shirt or especially like the jam bands and the blues bands and stuff like that. They go crazy with the posters. They'll bring in like 300 posters signed and numbered and we'll sell them for like a hundred bucks a pop and they'll be gone in like 30 minutes. I mean, we're literally selling them so fast, like nine people back in the merch booth, just shelving them off like crazy. Like, (laughs) wow. Yeah. Um, and so the whole time it's, it's super fast. I mean, it is like, it's about, I would probably say similar to like being a bartender at a really, really busy bar, you know, it's really fast transactions and you got to be on it. I mean, it's someone walks up to you and they say they want nine t-shirts and two pin packs and one CD and a vinyl record. And in my head, I'm like $390 and I run back and I grab it all and come back and, and present it to them and they buy it and boom on to the next person. Like immediately. It's so, so fast. The only time you have downtime probably is during the actual so, headliner set, right? Yeah. Normally doors open around five o'clock. We get slammed up uh-huh. until the headliner takes the stage, which is usually like around nine or so. Jeez. So when the headliner takes the stage, we finally get a relief break and that's where like we can run to the bathroom. We can run to the concession stand and grab a snack or most of us bring food in our backpacks and that's when we open up our backpack and start chowing our dinners um, and then it also gives us time to kind of reorganize everything because we just for four hours got slammed and you know someone says they want a t-shirt and then they don't want it and you throw it back and someone else wants a different t-shirt and stuff gets kind of messy so sure yep and so that's kind of our time to clean up before the big out because then all the people who didn't want to carry merch through the whole show are going to get us on the out and so before the show ends at, you know, 11, 30, 12 o'clock midnight, we're getting everything reorganized and looking good. So that way, when the show ends, we get hit again with that major rush and we can handle it as quickly as possible and get those people out. So hopefully if the show's over by 1130, by like 1215, everybody's totally gone. And then you got to sit there and you got to get everything off the wall and bring everything back together and you have to count everything you have left. And that's a couple more hours of work. So now we're talking like two in the morning. We're finally done counting everything and boxing it up. And then we still got to run the numbers and make sure that the the numbers run right. Because if they checked us in $200,000 worth of merchandise, hopefully... We sold like 150,000 of it and we're returning 50,000 to merch and giving them 150,000 boom, done. We're good. Is that a typical number for a headliner at Red Rocks, 150K in merch? Uh, no, that's pretty high. That's that's pretty high. I wouldn't say that. I would say an average Red Rock show does about sixty to $70,000 okay, okay, of so merch. Let's say 70. Out of that 70, what percentage of that is done before headliner takes the stage and what percentage is done after the show? Oh, man, I'd say like... 70 to 80 percent of it is done before they take stage and then the last 20 to 30 percent is what we get hit with at the end of the night okay because again a lot of people they they know that they they want that shirt and they don't want to be out of the sizes because how bummed are you when you go to a show that you really really want to see and then at the end of the night you go hit the merch booth and you need an extra large shirt and they're like we have smalls and three x's left you know, you're like, well, fuck, that sucks. I don't want that. Right. <laughs> oh, that's oh, that that's interesting. Uh, merch on such a huge scale. Yeah, that's yep. really that's really neat. You've been with them for eleven years. Will you come back uh, sometimes in the summer and do a couple shows here and there? No, I won't come back to work. No, 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 no. You're heading out. So let's continue. So now that we segued into that, let's, yeah. So the segue to that. Here. Uh, t- 
So I was at Herman's Hideaway for two years, and right at the end of those two years, I was working a shift up at Red Rocks Amphitheater that Scott Campbell had booked up there. And so I ran into him at the merch booth, and he kind of you know pulls me aside a little bit. He's like, how, how are things going down at Herman's? I was just like, man, they're going great. Like Booking a ton of shows and doing really, really well down there. And uh, the, the only thing is I'm kind of like spinning my wheels. I'm just doing the same thing over and over now that I've been there for two years. It's like I just keep booking the same bands and the same shows and the same stuff over and over and over again. And I really want to get like more into the professional world of the industry and like figure out how to work with national touring bands and like with agents from agencies and figure out how. I mean, I hate to say it like in a condescending or terrible way towards Herman's Hideaway, but like Herman's Hideaway was just like all local bands and doing the same thing over and over and over again. A lot of tributes. Yeah, uh, yeah a lot of tribute. Uh, somewhat. Not, not too many. Not too many, but. It's just a lot of the same stuff over and over again, and you find a reggae show that does well, and then you book it every two to three months, and you find a metal show that does well, and you book it every few months, and it's just kind of the same thing over and over, and I knew that getting with Campbell, getting back to with Campbell would be a good move for me, so what happened was he came to the merch booth, and he was just like, yeah, I'm I'm looking at buying this little dive bar in East Colfax, and if I do it, I'm going to need somebody to operate it for me, and... um I was like, man, that sounds interesting. And so we talked about it a little bit more. And I was just like, huh, I'll go check this out. So the next night, I drive down to Lost Lake on East Colfax. And I go in, and I just have, like, a terrible experience. I mean, I I go in. The place is small, dirty, stinky. Uh, what was it called? It was called Lost Lake. Oh, it, it was, it was, Lost, it was Lake Lost Lake, yep. Okay. Yep, so... Uh, there's a band in the back corner playing on the floor, and they like have their amps turned to 11. There's no sound engineer. There's no sound system. There's no stage. You just show up and play on the floor and, and just turn your amps up, and that's it. And so I walk into this place. Like I said, it's small. It's dirty. It's stinky. It, the band is playing on like volume 11 on their amps, and it's so loud I can't even like order a beer from the bartender. And just That was kind of the culture and the atmosphere of the place, though, which was like kind of cool. You know, I liked that it was like this dirty, dingy dive bar, but also I'm looking at it like, am I really going to leave Herman's Hideaway, like this 500 capacity venue that's been around for 30 plus years that has a big stage and a nice sound system and is so well known to go to this tiny little dive bar that nobody knows about? And there was two places to play in that bar at first, right? Yeah, kind of, yeah, I mean, either up on like the little piano stage up on the right or in the back on the floor, where then we ended up building a secondary stage. I see. Um, and so, yeah, I didn't have a very good experience going into Lost Lake for that first time. But at the same time, like I just knew that going to work under Scott Campbell was going to be the right move for me. And so I left Herman's Hideaway and I went in and took over Lost Lake. He purchased Lost Lake and I went in and I mean, I did everything in those first couple of years that Lost Lake was there from renovating, helping routing speaker wires and painting the venue and building new stages and tearing down walls. And I mean, we, you know, we did a lot of construction in that building. When we first took it over and there were like lots of moving pieces and parts where the bar was set up in one area. We finally scraped it out, moved it to a different area. Uh, there was a small stage in one room and no stage in the other room. So we built the main stage into the back room. Um, and then we moved that around a bunch. There was just a lot, a lot of stuff that we moved around in the beginning there. Um, and so the first couple of years that I took over Lost Lake, it was just, it was crazy, man. I was being paid salary, which is, you know, 40 hours a week you're getting paid for. And I was doing 70 hour work weeks at least. And 
I was doing everything from like our tracking our employees so we could cut their paychecks to paying the bills of the venue to handling every single order, you know, whether it was liquor or gas or whatever the order was coming in, a delivery, I'd be there to receive that. Um, And it was just a ton of work in the beginning, just going from doing all of like the day-to-day stuff, but also booking the bands and running the door. And I was hiring, firing and training door guys and sound guys and bartenders. I mean, I was just full on managing the whole thing from the ground up in the beginning. And after two years of doing it, we hit October, which naturally October is like the busiest month. month. Yeah. Huge, huge month in live music touring. And that second rotation year round, when we hit October, the calendar looked like shit. I mean, there was like 10 or 12 dates booked in all of October. And he comes to me, he's like, what is going on? Like, what is, what, like, where's all the shows? Why we need more? And I'm like, dude, like, I don't have time to be booking 25 shows in a month. Like I'm handling all of our employees. I'm doing all of the hour tracking. I'm paying all the bills for the venue. I'm doing all the ordering and receiving. I'm handling all the inspections. Anytime a city person comes over or the fire department comes over for an inspection, like no matter what it is, I'm handling all of this stuff. I don't have time to be booking like all these concerts anymore when I'm handling all this other shit. And so he was like, all right, this is what we're going to do. We're going to hire a manager for Lost Lake to handle like the venue GMing stuff. We're going to put you in the office over at Larimer Lounge and you're going to office out of Larimer Lounge and book Lost Lake and do some of Larimer as well. And so I was like, all right, that sounds like a way better deal for sure. So I let go of all the venue management responsibilities and I went over to Larimer Lounge office and I started working from there with James Irving and James Irving was the Larimer Lounge booker at the time. Yeah. And I was just kind of pitching in and helping out when I could. Um, shortly after that transition happened, James announced that he got a new job in New York and he was moving. And, and we're about 2015 at this time. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Okay. About 2015 at this time. Um, and he said he was moving and I got offered his job to become the senior lead talent buyer for Lost Lake and Larimer Lounge. And so I took that up. Um, and then Three years later or so, this is about two years ago now, uh, we bought Globe Hall as well. And so Globe Hall is another venue that we acquired, and now I've got three rooms under my plate. And so for the last few and years... these are all two to 250 cap yep, rooms. Yep, Lost Lake is 200 cap, Larimer Lounge is 250, Globe Hall is 250. Yeah. Um, and so that's basically like the last 10 years of my life has just been booking and running these venues from the ground up. And as you can see, like it really was the ground up when I was like doing hiring, firing, training, inspections, doing all the building stuff and like all the management stuff. Um, But then once I got up into like really just booking shows only, that's when things kind of changed for me. Um, And I was just, the volume of booking picked up a ton. I mean, I was going from booking like 12 to 15 shows a month to like 40 shows a month. Wow. And that's where I've been for the last couple of years now is booking 35 to 50 concerts a month between the three clubs. Wow. It's a lot. It's a lot, a lot. And Lost Lake has also been renovated and looks very nice now. Ah, thank you. <laughs> like I said, in the beginning, there was just, it was constant renovations. Like we had so much stuff we wanted to do, but we couldn't afford to do it all at once. And right. so it was just like small little steps Oh, I remember the first time we played there. It was uh, an after party for the Andrews Osborne show at the Bluebird Theater, and we were in that back little room. Mm-hmm. And it was—I mean, we didn't—we couldn't all fit on the stage. But, <laughs> yeah. but good, good memories. I forget that it, when you brought that up, what it looked like. I was like, oh yeah, yeah. Um, so you've you've been in the scene forever. Now it's 2020. The last couple of years, you've been the head honcho at Larimer and Lost Lake and and Globe Hall. 
and something recently came up. I mean, you've you've been a uh, central part of the Denver music scene for over a decade now. What's yeah. uh, what's changing? So what happened was I was going to do the Hometown for the Holidays meetup, which is local radio station, uh, Clear Channel, 93.3 KTCL. They do a Hometown for the Holidays meetup every year, and I participate in it. And basically what we do is we all go meet up at the Clear Channel Studios down in the DTC area here in Denver, and we listen to 130-second clips of bands without being told who they are, and we rate them. So we get a big pad of paper in front of us, and we have 100 lines on it. And so each song gets played a 30-second clip, and we just write in from a scale of 1 to 5 how much we liked it, how listenable it was, how much we could see it progressing in the local music community or on the radio airwaves or into you know performance at the Bluebird or whatever, whatever. And so you rate it on a 1 to 5 scale of how good it sounds and what you feel about it, and you write little notes about like, Oh, the you know this section was great, but that section was terrible. Or like, I really liked how you did this. Or I really liked the vocals here. Just whatever, whatever. Um, and so the hometown for the holidays meetup is a thing where we we go down, we judge, and we rate all of these little clips of sound, and then they take the top. 10 or 20 people and put them in a contest um, to do a big show at Summit Music Hall and they win all these prizes and yada, yada, yada. It's like this big annual thing it's that they do with all the sponsors. Yeah, it, it is. It is for sure. Um, there's lots of like sponsorships involved and you know, you win a lot of great stuff, which I should get more familiar with what all is, is with what yeah. all you get to win. Yeah. Um, but so, anywho, I was going to go meet up at this Clear Channel meetup. And we get an email like the day of or the day before, and they were like, oh, my God, we're so sorry, but the room at Clear Channel got double booked. Uh, but thankfully, Peter Orr is opening the Oriental Theater for us to go do this over there. And we're all like, sweet, this is going to be awesome. Like, instead of listening to these clips of songs on these tiny little speakers, now we get to go into the Oriental Theater and listen to these clips on, like, big, massive speakers. Like, yeah. this is going to be awesome. Yeah. Uh, so we go down to do it. And as soon as I get there, I see Peter Orr, who I've known. I mean, we've sat on panels together, and my friends have worked for him in the past. And, you know, I've, I, we know of each other just through the music scene for sure. And... um we just start kind of shooting the shit and I just throw it out there. I'm like, Hey man, like you looking for any work or just looking for any help in the booking department? And he like right away is like, wow, you looking to quit your job? And I was like, no, 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 no. Like I'm not looking to quit my job, but I've been running these clubs for a long time and I'm you know always looking upwards and I want to find something bigger and better. And I just, I, I want to move upwards. Like I've been running these tiny little clubs for so long now. I feel like I'm, I want to do something bigger and better. And he was like, well, how do you feel about Dallas, Texas? And I was like, hell no, I don't feel anything about Dallas, Texas. Like, I don't, <laughs> why? He's like, well, I run gas monkey venues down there. And I was like, oh, I'm not not familiar. That's right. Okay. Yep. This is all connected yep. now. And so Peter Orr, a little bit of history on him. He was a booker for Live Nation. Then him and another guy left Live Nation to start their own company, Soda Jerk Presents. They successfully did Soda Jerk Presents here in Denver for like 12 years or something. And they built it up to such a successful point that they sold it back to Live Nation. So it's kind of a cool story that this guy was like working for Live Nation, hated the corporate structure and how they did things. So he left to go do it on his own, started his own company that did so well that he then sold it and made a ton of money off of the company he used to work for to buy his business. And then he took that money oh, and he cool. invested it just into himself and into the oriental theater and he's got some investment into the streets of uh you know the streets the venue yeah. there used to be streets of london now it's just called streets or mm. streets denver um he does some booking over there as well 
And so knowing that he books the Oriental Theater and Streets and I've, you know, I've, I know his history and everything. I was like, oh, this could be something interesting. So he invited me out for a drink the next night to go meet up. And we went and met up over in the Highlands and he busts out his laptop and just starts showing me pictures like this is Gas Monkey Live, 2000 capacity venue. This mm-hmm. is Gas Monkey Barbecue and Grill, 1200 capacity venue. And he just started kind of selling me on everything. And don't forget the beautiful outdoor stage on the river. Yes, yes. Or maybe it's a lake. I think it's a river. Uh, it's it's like a, yeah, it is a river. That, I don't know if the river actually goes anywhere, though. It might just be like a little circular river yeah. thing. Yeah, well, it's um, beautiful. It's a cool, it's a cool, cool venue, listeners. Yeah, it's it a is, very cool it spot. is. So he's pretty much just like, yeah, selling me on the venue, and then just like, do you want to go check it out? I was like, yeah, when? He's like, in a couple weeks? I'm like, Sure, why not? Yeah. And so the first weekend of January, Peter and I flew out together down to Dallas, and I spent just two quick days down there, and I got to see the venues, and I got to meet some of the staff, and I got to explore through the city a little bit and just kind of figure things out of where I would maybe want to move if I was going to do this whole thing. Um, and by the end of my trip, I really liked it. I mean, I just I, I liked the vibe of the city, and I liked the venues, and I could definitely tell it's going to be a huge step up from what I do right now. And, um, yeah, I came back and started negotiations that second week of January. And by the last week of January, we got it all hashed out, and they made me an offer, and I agreed to it and said I would I would leave and do it. And so, holy shit, here we go. I, that last Monday of January, I turned in my notice to Gwen and Scott over at Larimer Lounge and Lost Lake and Globe. Did they have any um, idea? No, no, they definitely did not see it coming whatsoever. Um, But, you know, the exit strategy was a really good one for sure. When I went and met up with them and told them that I was leaving, at first they were like, well, yeah, like let's do two weeks so you can get your final two weeks here and then whatever, you know, you can go if if that's what you're doing. And then it was kind of like, I mean, I I was offering two weeks, but at the same time I was like, man, do I really need to do this for like two more weeks? And they kind of agreed, like, what if we just call it one week? Are you okay with that? Like, we'll just do this last week? I was like, yeah, absolutely. And so the last week of January I spent just kind of like tying up on my loose ends, making sure any shows that I had booked were like booked and had support and everything was listed and good to go. And I just pretty much took everything that I was working on and just shifted it over to everyone else. And and you're out the door. <laughs> I'm out the door. Um, do you feel like you're leaving any opportunity behind with this, with taking the new job? Any opportunity with AEG, or with or with no. Scott or anything like that? Not really. No. I just it's been so long that it's like, if the opportunity was gonna come, it should have come already. It's been. And if a bigger opportunity comes now to come back to Denver, it might be because you did really well. Well, and that's where Texas. that's where I'm at is. I've been running these small capacity clubs for so long, trying to get up to a bigger level, and it just hasn't happened. You know, and there's not a lot of open positions that happen up at that higher level. Um, and so it was just like when this job opportunity came to me, it was like, man, I do not want to go to Dallas, but this is a great job opportunity. So I started real quickly. I just like I reached out to some people in L.A. I reached out to some people in Seattle. I reached out to some people in San Francisco and I even hit a friend in Chicago and I just hit these people to be like, is there any work I can do? Like, is there an AEG spot or a live nation spot or like a talent buyer spot in one of these cities? Or I just started like combing through the websites and looking at shit. And it was just like a lot of assistant positions and it was nothing that was as great of an opportunity as this was. And so that's when I knew like, I got to do this. I got to just take this opportunity and do it. And if anything, 
If I go down there and I absolutely hate it, I don't like working for the clubs, I don't like the city of Dallas, I don't like living in Texas, whatever it might be, I can leave and I can go do something else. And I think if I were to come back to Colorado, this will put me in a better position to get hired by AEG or Live Nation because you know I'm going to another city running these giant capacity venues. And then if I come back, I think I'll be in a better position if I come back. But I also think that this job is going to show me if I really do want to go towards the corporate direction of Live Nation or AEG or C3 or any of those companies, or if I can make this work on an independent level well, you know? Yeah, I think that's that's great. Were, uh, were Scott and Gwen surprised when you, I mean, were, were they, I mean, they had no idea, but were they okay with it? Were they upset? Was it, I mean, was it a peaceful, this is what needs to happen, we're all good kind of thing? Um, I mean, it's obviously a huge loss for them and I've been running these clubs for as long as I've been running them I'm a huge asset to the company and I think I handle even more work than some people acknowledge or notice because I've been there for so long I'm just kind of like the go-to guy that if anyone has a question just ask me and I'll probably have some sort of answer so I think it was definitely a rough punch you know when when I told them I was leaving but at the same time they were very understanding to it, and I think they knew that at some point this had to happen. You know, at some point Tony was going to move on. At some point, like he's been doing these venues for this long, at some point something had to happen. Whether it was something that they created to happen for me, or if I went out and found it on my own, or whatever it was. And I think it was kind of like a mutual mental thing going on there between us where it was just like man this sucks and it sucked for me like I didn't really want to leave these clubs like I've put my whole life into these clubs I love these clubs I love working for them I love doing what I do but at the same time like I can't keep doing the same thing forever you know like I can't keep at the same amount of money that I make and the same capacity of clubs and it's just there's such a ceiling there and I need to be able to break out of that and now now I now I'm doing it See, and so, you felt a little stuck, maybe. Yeah, 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 I definitely felt stuck. I for sure felt stuck. And I mean, I I brought tears to Gwen's eyes when I told her I was leaving just because it was, you know, it was like a really detrimental thing to both sides, I think. But it was also one of those things that's like understanding, like, yeah, dude, you got to go on and do something else at some point. So if this is the point that you found something cool. And I know Scott definitely was kind of coming at me a little bit more aggressively of like, dude, like, why are you leaving? Like, I thought we were building something here. I thought we were building up your resume and building you to like this next level. Like it kind of sucks to see you go now that we've been doing this. But again, it's like, dude, I've been doing this building under you for like eight years now. Like and nothing's happening. Like I, I'm going to take my own leap. I'm going to do my own thing. <laughs> you never got that call to do the AG booking or whatever. Yeah, uh uh-uh. But also, not a position is opened up over there for that. Unless I wanted to be like an assistant. You know, there's been assistant positions, marketer positions, all these different positions that have opened up over there. But there's never been like a sole talent buyer position to open up over there, at least in the last five to six years, um, if not more. And so it was just like I wasn't going to try to do something like be an assistant or do something that I wasn't fully into. You know, like I I, I know who I am and what I do and what I want to do, and that's what I'm going to do. You seem very relaxed as you talk to me right now, especially when we started talking about this new opportunity. Not that you're not always a relaxed dude. Um, even even in the midst of a crazy busy show, you're always uh, smiling and chilled out, which it probably makes you really good at what you do. If you're a, if you're a panicker, you're not going to be good in your position. Um, but you just seem very uh, 
I saw your shoulders drop three inches further than I thought they could. He's I, I, you seem uh, certain and excited about the opportunity. <laughs> I, hold <it> up. <laughs> I am, man. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm a mix of emotions right now. I'm scared. I'm excited. I'm happy. Like I'm sad. I mean, it's a little bit of a mix of everything right now. Um, you know, I, I don't know a single person in Dallas. Like I've been combing through relatives and friends and social media, and I don't know one person in Dallas, Texas. And I've literally spent 48 hours there and that's it. And I'm like making this decision to move and become like Mr. Popular concert promoter in a new city. And by all means, like, I'm also like, I'm, I'm not too scared about it because like, I know I'm going to do fine. Like I know, I know what I'm doing. I know where I'm going. I know what my potential is. I know what I'm capable of. Right. I can kind of foresee what's about to happen in this next year, and it's going to be good. So I'm, you know, like for the most part, I'm just I'm really happy and excited about all of it. But I've been in Colorado almost my whole life. This is where all my people are, all my friends are, all my luxuries of living are. Like you know me, I'm a mountain boy. I love snowboarding. I love four wheeling. Yeah. I like to be up in the hills and the in the mountains, standing on the side of a cliff. Like, no, you're. Uh you're gonna do great and and hey colorado's always here uh, for a week or or a year lease whenever, <laughs> i will be coming back to visit all the time um are you worried about about finding real friends you'll right away i mean you'll meet people right away yeah. but your position um inevitably and i i uh empathize with you and with danny and connor and everybody who books bands in denver um everybody is your friend yeah wink, wink. yeah um, but I think it's hard to find who your real friends are or your mm -hmm. real acquaintances are or whatever. And I don't know. I've never been in that position, but yeah. you certainly have a lot of people kissing your ass. <laughs> um, are, does that worry you at all um, about finding people who are transparent and true true friends? No, not really. I seem to attract a certain kind of people to me, like just now, like in, in the real world of like down to earth friendships, like not in the world of business, but like in, in the real world outside of business, I seem to attract easygoing, artistic, fun people around me. Like, I, I don't know how or why or what that is, but like I have friends tell it to me all the time too. But like the people I surround myself with are always just really amazing people. And I don't know why or how I always like build these friendships with these people, but they always just naturally happen. Like they just, I will find people down there that I have common interests with and we will link up and become friends. Like yeah. it's, and I think I'm obviously I'm a really easy laid back spirit to like hang out with and I'm very easygoing. So it's, you know, I'm not like, Oh, I got to do this. I got to go there. Ah, it's just like very, whatever. Let's just hang out. And you know, I think that, that attracts a lot of people to me too. Just easy, easy person to hang out with. I think that's that's probably true, and I also I think uh, the personal the mixed personality trait of being laid back and easygoing, but also getting shit done, yeah. is a is a rare one to find, and you've got that. <laughs> yeah, yep. And I think I'm a, I'm a good judge of character. I've always kind of had that like uncanny ability to kind of like read through the lines and see through people, and like you said, like it's. There is that line of everybody wants to be my friend and everyone wants to know who I am because of my position of what I do and where I'm at. And that goes in a little bit different direction of like, I'm, a, I'm really good at being able to read people and make friends with the people that I can tell I want to be friends with versus acquaintances and people that's just like, yeah, like I know you and I see you around in the scene. I mean, the music industry is just a business of relations. And I have relations with so many people, including people I don't even like, but 
they'll never know that I don't like them, and I'll never let it be known to anyone that I don't like them, unless I want to, obviously. Right. But there's tons of people in this industry that I can't stand, and I will never say a word about it because it's business, and it's a working relationship, and that's how it goes. And I always find ways to work around those personality flaws or those conflicts of interest or whatever it is. Yeah. No, I'm, I I'm, I know you do. I know you do. And I, along those lines and also along the lines we've been talking about sort of throughout the whole podcast of that, that community you've built, um, when – when people post things on social media, not like your social media numbers matter for this or that, but when people post things on, I'll use Facebook because uh, on Facebook you're not really posting to the outside world as much as to your community. Yeah. You're not adding hashtags for yeah. worldwide appeal. Um, when people post something big that happens in their lives, that's usually what gets the most likes that I've noticed. Oh, yeah. Um, and I put, you know, my last big thing was my Berkeley certificate and I, you know, 150 people liked it. And for me, that's off the charts. That oh, never yeah. happens. That's, that's awesome. a buttload of likes. Um, when you posted your big <laughs> life event uh, that was going on, when I saw it, I don't even know what it ended up at. Well, when I saw it, it had like 460 likes and 120 comments or something. Yeah. And I'm sure it grew. Yeah, it's over that. a thousand now. It's over a thousand likes and over like 500 comments. Jesus. Um, I... <laughs> I could post that I'm going to be the president of the United States and I wouldn't get those numbers. I mean, how many friends do you have on Facebook? I don't know. <laughs> so you don't even, I know I have 49. I'm almost to 5,000. Oh, you're I keep, almost to the limit. I, the limit is 5,000 and I keep getting up to the limit and then I have to like go and like do some maintenance and find expired profiles or people haven't posted in a year or two and delete them. Damn. And like, yeah, and that's kind of, but. It, it, it goes to show, you know, like depending on your numbers, like I was just hanging out with a friend from Chicago over the weekend and he was like, when I post stories on Instagram, I get about 350 views on them, like at the most after 24 hours. And I was like, wow, that's like the exact same number that I get on my Instagram. I was like, how many friends do you have or followers on Instagram do you have? And he was like, oh, I have like 2,900. I was like, oh, me too. So it's just interesting to see, like, if you have Andy Sado, 5,000 personal friends on Facebook, and you make that life-altering, changing post, you'll probably get a bunch more. But if you only have 1,000 or 2,000 friends on Facebook right. and you make that life change, then, yeah, you might only get a couple hundred likes on it. Well, whatever the reason is, whether it's your it's your friend number um, <laughs> or, or not, I mean, and I, I believe, yeah, that probably has something to do with it, but to the same point uh, – it, I, I remember reading that and thinking, wow, how overwhelming. And it, it probably brought tears to your own eyes to see how much support you have from people in the community and how many people, some people you don't know that well, some people that you booked once five yeah. years ago that are chiming in and letting you know how much uh, how much you mean to them in the in the local scene. And that's got to be a really cool Dude, thing. I'm, I'm literally, look at that, goosebumps had, and my hair had, is sticking out. Like touch, not, <laughs> not even kidding. And I've been getting this like goosebumps and my hair raising a lot lately because it is just an unbelievable feeling. It's very reassuring. And just knowing that I've helped so many people get on a stage for the first time ever, or I've helped so many people do so much more than that and projecting their career upwards. And it's just, it's a really, really good feeling to get all of this like positive reinforcement and positive emotions and everything coming at me through all of this, which helps me be way more secure in what I'm doing. Like, I think if I wasn't getting all of this positive reinforcement, I'd be way more scared and nervous about the actions that I'm taking. But being the amount of positive reinforcement I've received with this, it just reminds me like, dude, you got this. Like, you can do you, anything. You got it. Yeah, you can do anything. You got it. Well, I, I want, uh, I'm sure we'll be getting frequent updates and 
and I hope to chat with you again in oh, a year yeah. or a year and a half or whatever in this same environment. Maybe I'll be, maybe I'll come down to Dallas and do it, but, uh, <laughs> we'd love to, you know, get an update and, and see where you're at with the new job. Absolutely. I'd love to do that with you. So, well, thank you for taking the time. I appreciate it. I know you got a, a lot of people to see before the big move. <laughs> thank you for having me, man. I really appreciate it. I can't just thank you and everyone here in the Denver scene and community enough for, you know, helping me get to where I'm at. as much as I've helped them get to where they're at. They've also helped me get to where I'm at. So it's a full, full circle community around here. And I'm sure I'm going to miss it, but excited to go start a new something in Dallas. Love it. Right on. <laughs> Thanks. All right. Thanks, Tony. Appreciate you coming on. And uh, once again, everybody in the Denver music community wishes you the best of luck in your new adventures in Dallas. And everybody in Dallas doesn't doesn't know what they're about to get. And I'm sure you'll have plenty of Denver bands hitting you up for tour dates in the near future. I want to say a quick thanks to our sponsors, PQ Mastering. Patrick at PQ Mastering puts the finishing touches on this podcast. For any of your audio or restoration needs, go to www.pqmastering.com for more information. Also, our newest sponsor is Narrator RF. Narrator offers simple and affordable licensing on exceptional music for sync. Go to www.narratorrf.com for more information. If you liked the podcast, it would mean a lot if you'd go to the Apple Podcast app and rate and review. Of course, you can listen anywhere, rate and review anywhere, but that's uh, if, if you have Apple Podcasts, that's the, the biggest thing you can do to help us out. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, hate mail, or death threats, you can email me at middleclassrockstar at gmail.com. Thanks again so much for listening, and I hope to hear from you soon.